Well, good morning. Good morning. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, Amen. who was and is and is to come. And uh, along with the seraphim and the four living creatures before the throne, we can uh, recognize that we've gathered on Sunday to worship such a God. And uh, here, even earlier than the worship service, we've gathered to discuss God's person. So we've come here to our third lesson in a series that will hopefully lead us to a better understanding of the triune God through the Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 2, on the doctrine of God and of the Holy Trinity. It is my hope that so far you've been comforted hearing that our God is the only one whom all honor and worship is due, the very reason why we've gathered today. And as we've discussed, he is the only one that truly satisfies the soul. We are to use God's creation, not enjoy it or worship it, so that we may ultimately, truly, one day, fully enjoy him face to face. If you would turn in God's word to, uh, to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Ecclesiastes 5. I'm going to be reading a passage that we came across this week in our family worship that I thought hit the nail on the head when it comes to this idea that there's only true satisfaction in, in, the, in the Lord. So in Ecclesiastes 5, starting in verse 10, I'm going to read till verse 20, the end of the chapter. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver nor he who loves abundance with increase. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. There is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun, riches kept for their owner to his hurt, but those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came. And he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? All his days he also eats in darkness. And he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all of his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is a gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the, on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joys of his heart. And what the preacher, who we believe is King Solomon, is saying here is that this labor and this increase and the gifts of this life are really only enjoyable when you recognize them as a gift of God. And uh, we read that Last night in our family worship, I thought that was worthy to share. I also want to share with you a prayer from this book, The Valley of Vision. This particular copy was a gift, a very good gift, a very precious gift. But I'm going to read to you a prayer. It's a collection of Puritan devotionals and prayers. I'm going to read to you a prayer titled, God Enjoyed. So let me read this to you, and then we'll pray together. Thou incomprehensible but prayer-hearing God, known but beyond knowledge, revealed but unrevealed, my wants and welfare draw me to thee, for thou hast never said, Seek ye me in vain. To thee I come in all of my difficulties, necessities, and distresses. Possess me with thyself, with a spirit of grace and supplication, with a prayerful attitude of mind, with access into warmth of fellowship, so that in the ordinary concerns of life my thoughts and desires may rise to thee, and in habitual devotion I may find a resource 
that will soothe my sorrows and sanctify my successes and qualify me in all ways for dealings with my fellow men. I bless thee that thou hast made me capable of knowing thee, the author of all being, of resembling thee, the perfection of all excellency, of enjoying thee, the source of all happiness. O God, attend me in every part of my arduous and trying pilgrimage. I need the same counsel, defense, comfort that I found at the beginning. Let my religion be more obvious to my conscience, more perceptible to those around. While Jesus is representing me in heaven, may I reflect him on earth. While he pleads my cause, may I show forth his praise. Continue the gentleness of thy goodness towards me. And whether I wake or sleep, let thy presence go with me. Thy blessing attend me. Thou hast led me on, and I have found thy promises true. I have been sorrowful, but thou hast been my help. Fearful, but thou hast delivered me. Despairing, but thou hast lifted me up. Thy vows are ever upon me, and I praise thee, O God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for so many good gifts. And we have just spent a week apart from one another, uh, doing what might be classified as mundane things in employment, home management, vehicle care, transiting to and fro, to meet our daily needs. But Lord, we know that you have given so many of these good gifts and the fact that you've preserved our breath and brought us to this place is an evidence that you are a good God upholding all things by the word of your power. And Lord, we thank you. We ask that you would help the prayers of those that have come before inspire us to pray fervently because you are a prayer hearing God. And Lord, we do not deserve such an audience, but Lord, you've through your son made a way for undulterated access to you and to your throne. Help us to explain and understand your character better as a result of this class so that we may enjoy you and glorify you to a higher degree as we are called to do so by your word. These things we pray in Jesus. Amen. Amen. So last week we read in Exodus chapter 20, reviewing the first and the second commandments of God. And uh, I'm going to read quickly to you the first and second commandments just as a refresher. From Exodus 20, starting at verse 1, the Lord says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So last week we were able to discern from the scriptures that God is a particular God. That was one concept last week. And the God is also an exclusive God. God is particular and that he is not some ambiguous spiritual force as the dominant voices of today might have you believe that may have the title higher power. Of course, you believe in a higher power. The very rocks will cry out and praise if you don't admit that God has designed all things. But the true God, the God who bears the covenant name Yahweh, and that name last week we talked about the Hebrew consonants Y-H-W-H, translating to I am. So we go back to that third chapter in Exodus when God identified himself to Moses as the God who uh, was the God of the covenants of his fathers. The one who led the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. The one who sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is the same God. That is the God who we worship. God is particular, but he's also exclusive. God is exclusive in the sense that all other gods, lowercase g, are to be excluded from our affections. We, have, we shall have no other gods before him, and two, we shall not make a graven image of anything that is above or beneath, bow down to or worship such idols. These are the first and second commandments. 
he proves that all other gods, quote-unquote, to be deaf and dumb, such as the pantheon of Egyptian gods being mocked in the plagues of Egypt, or the priests of Baal calling for their aid, the aid of their false god. Reading now from 1 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 25. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bull which was given to them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made, and it was at noon, and Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is meditating or he is busy, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. The Lord uses his prophets and apostles and, of course, his word to show that all of the gods are really just idols made by human imagination and human hands. God, when compared to the idols, is proven to be the only true and the only living God. He is the only true and living God in that sense. And he does not share what is only owed to him. I had a conversation recently with somebody at work um, explaining how all things are made through God, the creator and origin of all things, and that all things are to God, that all things were made for him. The inevitable response that followed, well, that that seems selfish, egotistical to me. Have anybody heard that before? Like God's an egotistical maniac? How do we respond to the idea that the Lord God is jealous for his own worship? It's clear in Exodus that he is jealous for his worship. But is that right and is that good? Art. It's a little shocking. You would think these people would say it would have great belief in have a God like we have. Uh-huh. You know, they were going to Zeus or they were going to Astro, whatever they were, Osiris and all those, all those demonic things. They were taking everything from them. Here's our God giving us stuff. You would think it's a yeah. You know, we were, I can't believe it was so wrong. You know, we got a good thing. Well, I think in a sense, the exclusivity of God demands that you humble yourself and submit. And that people say the worst word in the United States is submission. And uh, you could say all the bad words in the world, but submission is the worst. Yeah. I think it's interesting that they at least recognize that selfishness is wrong. And so the next logical question at that point is where do you get that idea from? Where is the standard? Right. Who is the standard? Right. Yeah, who is the standard? So the door to the gospel that they don't have. They're, they think they're shutting the door, but it's actually opening the door. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was, it was excellent. Brett, did you have something? I think it kind of ties into what we were talking about last week as far as God being a reference point for everything. And like, there are good things to be jealous about. Like, being jealous of your time, being jealous of your wife, for instance. Mm. Um, things like that. There are good things Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we're going to talk about communicable and incommunicable attributes of God later in the lesson. Jealousy may be something we talk about then. But, uh, of course, you know, we understand jealousy. We understand anger. We understand so many things through the definition of who God is. And the way I responded to this gentleman's work was simply, is it egotistical if it's right for him to have exclusive worship? He deserves it. Paul Washer writes in one of his uh, sermons, God is jealous and that he will not surrender his claim to that which is rightfully his. Similar to how a husband would not surrender his claim upon his wife, nor the wife upon the husband, which is a right expression of jealousy in us. His creation, because within the marriage covenant there is an exclusivity for another's affections. God is jealous because it is right for him to be so. And it is right for us to give him unconditional worship and worship him alone. He made us from the dust. Not the profane, nor the creature, but only the creator. It does not make God egotistical when he, when he by right demands what is actually his. Charles Spurgeon, 
the Prince of Preachers, as some may call him, in a, title, uh, in a sermon titled, A Jealous God, says this, The Lord Jesus Christ, of whom I now speak, is very jealous of your love, O believer. Did he not choose you? He cannot bear that you should think and choose another. Did he not buy you with his own blood? He cannot endure that you should think you are your own or that you belong to this world. He loved you with such a love that he could not stop in heaven without you. He would sooner die than that you should perish. He stripped himself to nakedness that he might clothe you with beauty. He bowed his face to shame and spitting that he might lift you up to honor and glory. He cannot endure that you should love the world and the things of this world. His love is strong as death towards you and therefore will be, a cruel, will be as cruel as the grave. He will be as cruel, he will be as a cruel one towards you if you do not love him with a perfect heart. He will take away that husband. He will smite that child. He will bring you from riches to poverty, from health to sickness, even to the gates of the grave, because he loves you so much that he cannot endure that anything should stand between your heart's love and him. Be careful, Christians. You are married to Christ. Remember, you are married to a jealous husband. God is a jealous God, and he's rightfully so. Um, and there's an exclusivity of, of uh, the worship of Yahweh. Linda. If Yeah. Now we're talking about the temptation of the serpent in the garden who told Eve, You shall be as gods. Dennis, do you have something to add? To lift ourselves up to the very place of God. We want to, we want to be there too. Yeah. So help me be. Yeah. Yeah, no, the, no other gods before me certainly includes our own selves. Um, but I always remind myself this too is that despite ourselves, Christ came. And then when you're talking about Romans 8, the list of things that shall not separate us from the love that we have in Christ Jesus also includes ourselves. So there's a comfort for the believer. Yes, Linda. 
interesting topic. <laughs> I, uh, I want to capitalize on this concept that we in the garden were tempted by that ancient serpent of old, that is Satan and the devil, to take what did not belong to us in order to be elevated and lifted up to the very place of God. And the one question I have for you, and this is a discussion question for the group, is uh, how do we define heresy? And what is the difference between heresy and error? is a question I have for the group. Keeping it as non-inflammatory as possible. <laughs> like, what's the, is there a difference between heresy and error? I think that's a question we should all wrestle with. Well, you might say heresy is intentional and error is in, in, unintentional. Okay. Maybe. That could one, be true. One distinction. I'll be gentle. Uh-huh. Okay. If I go into a cult or a seminar on end time theology, I go, hmm. You know, it looks like to me they have certain convictions that they elevate to if you want to be a member here and believe the truth of the Bible, you'll sign on. Mm. But then there are other pulpits that would teach the same thing as if it was word for word, literal interpretation of God and profess to be Protestant. So I have a query. Yeah. Through all the lines. Yeah, right. So I would say, <laughs> we're bringing this in, I would say that heresy is a serious or soul-endangering sin that because it involves distorting, perverting, manipulating, or denying cardinal truths of the Christian faith, by its very nature, is disruptive and destructive to the peace, purity, and unity of the body of Christ. I like that. I want to put it on a t-shirt. Very, <laughs> very simple. That's not to be confused with error. Now, error, uh, the, the one that most people point to is the administration of the sacraments. You know, there's, there's a lot of um, misunderstanding. You know, we're, we're a Presbyterian church, so we would look at a Baptist church and say, our brothers have an error, and that error is how and uh, in the scope of how they administer the sacrament of baptism, right? Of course. So that's just an example of what might be constituted as an error, but an error does not necessarily cut us off from fellowship with such a group, right? Heresy does. And this heresy that I want to be talking about today, very much along the line of God is exclusive and jealous for his own worship, and that we are so inclined to raise up to the very place of God, we're going to be talking about uh, Mormonism here in just a few minutes. But I believe it's important to recognize that a distortion of God himself is often where heresies take root. Okay, Whether it be his person, the denial of the Trinity, Christ's divinity, Christ's humanity, etc. Um, I mentioned briefly last week of Jehovah's Witnesses. We'll be talking about them more. Uh, again, when we discuss the person of Jesus Christ in this class. I also think it's important to argue, not just understand that heresies start at God, but I think it's also important to argue that we must be arguing from the affirmative. And what I mean is that uh, we must stand first upon that which we affirm before we identify that which contradicts what we affirm. And therefore, as a consequence, must refute. Okay, So we must have a conviction, an affirmation, in order to identify the contradictions of such a claim. In this case, we affirm that there is but one true and living God. That was the subject of our class last week. And it's precisely on this point that Mormonism makes its greatest error. I will also make the case that Mormonism is a Christian heresy. In a sense, any worship that's not given to Yahweh alone is technically a Christian heresy because Yahweh is the Christian God. Um, but this is exacerbated in Mormonism and in Jehovah's Witness, for example, because they claim the name of Jesus. They claim the name Jesus Christ as their God. 
or a subject of their faith. So how do Mormons violate this concept that there is one true and living God? Uh, First, Mormonism, also known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, worldwide has a membership of over 16 million and ranks within the largest religions in North America, Utah being their epicenter. Their membership in the U.S. has doubled since the 1980s. I think that's relevant information. And the church, (coughs) this church, reportedly receives more than $5 billion in tithes every year, uh, with consolidated assets thought to be over $30 billion in net worth. They also have substantial real estate for profit business investments through a company called Deseret Managed Corporation, if you've ever heard of such a thing, uh, which is also one of the largest farmland owners in the United States. Pat, did you have something? But is it really a true church of Jesus Christ? They would sure like you to think so. Uh, It's a Mormon tactic to appeal to basic Christian and conservative ethics that sound orthodox when knocking on the door. But once you're in the doors of the temple, things change. I want to read to you, just to highlight that fact, the Articles of Faith. There are 13 Articles of Faith that date back to Joseph Smith. I'm going to read to you some of these, and um, they might surprise you at first. Okay, their first article, this this is a creed of theirs. They say that we believe in God, the Eternal Father, and in his Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. Okay. Interesting. We believe that men will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. Now it's starting to sound a little unfamiliar. We believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of, gospel, of the gospel. Okay. Interesting. We believe that the first principles and ordinance of the gospel are, first, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, second, repentance, third, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, fourth, the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. Five, we believe that a man must be called of God by prophecy and by the laying on of hands by those who are in authority to preach the gospel and administer the ordinances thereof. We believe in the same organization that existed in the primitive church, namely apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and so forth. We believe in the gifts of tongues, prophecy, revelation, visions, healing, interpretation, tongues, and so forth. We believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. We also believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God. We believe all that God has revealed, all that he does now reveal, and we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So this is one of the tenets of Mormonism is that there are living active prophets in the church today. We believe in a literal gathering of Israel and in a restoration of the ten tribes that Zion, the new Jerusalem, will be built upon the American continent, that Christ will reign personally upon the earth, and that the earth will be renewed and receive its paradisical glory. We claim the privilege of of worshiping Almighty God according to the dictates of our own conscience. Hmm. There's no regulative principle here. And allow all men the same privilege. Let Let them worship how, where, and what they may. Okay, that's interesting. We believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, magistrates, and obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. And we believe in being honest, true, chaste, benevolent, virtuous, and in doing good to all men. Indeed, we say that we follow the admonition of Paul. We believe all things, we hope all things, we have endured many things, and hope to be able to endure all things. If there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. Very interesting articles of faith. You know, there's enough in there that sounds basically Christian to confuse the average person. Now, what they don't talk about in the Articles of Faith is the actual hope of the Mormon believer. Now, the hope of the Christian is in the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and raised from the dead, ascended on high, pleading our case before the throne of heaven. 
<coughs> the hope of the Mormon is to become like God. And this is a very important distinction, especially when we recognize that the real God, the true and living God, should be the only that receives praise and worship. <clears throat> and it begins for them how we're made. Latter-day Saints see all people as children of God in a full and complete sense. They consider every, this is from their website, by the way. They consider every person divine in origin, nature, and potential. Each has an eternal core and is, quote, a beloved spirit, son, or daughter of heavenly parents, unquote. Each possesses seeds of divinity and must choose whether to live in harmony or in tension with that divinity. Through the atonement of Jesus Christ, which I'm not exactly sure how they would interpret that at this point, all people may progress towards perfection and ultimately realize their divine destiny. Just as a child can develop the attributes of his parents or her parents over time, the divine nature that humans inherit can be developed to become like their heavenly father. The desire to nurture the divinity in his children is one of God's attributes the most, that most inspires, motivates, and humbles members of the church. God's loving parentage and guidance can help each willing and obedient child of God to receive his fullness and his own glory. This knowledge transforms the way Latter-day Saints see their fellow human beings. The teaching that men and women have potential to be exalted to a state of godliness clearly expands beyond what is understood by most contemporary Christian churches and expresses for the Latter-day Saints a yearning rooted in the Bible to live as God lives, to love as he loves, and to prepare for all that our loving Father in heaven wishes for his children. So, there's a lot to unpack there. But if you dig into the Book of Mormon and you read their writings, what you'll find is that God, as we know God, they would say also has a spouse. Okay? That there is a divine mother that has, from conception, birthed humans. Okay? Maybe not a literal birth, like a human birth but that we are progeny of a heavenly father and a heavenly mother. Okay, that's, an or, that's a Mormon tenet. And because of it, they believe, quote, that they see all people as children of God in a full and complete sense, as if we share uh, past DNA, a divine seed within every person that can be cultivated or um, turned away from. Now, the ultimate hope here is that upon death, there are multiple heavens, as you will say, in Mormon religion. If you think about uh, the articles of faith, one of the things that stood out to me in those 13 articles was how ambiguous their articles are at certain points by saying all people may worship where and when they must and however they wish and please, you know, that sort of language in the articles of faith. A Mormon would look at you and probably say that you were going to a third heaven. A third heaven where you'll be single forever, but enjoy some elements of bliss. For the Mormon, who's faithful and does many good works in their life, they are given heavenly spouses, heavenly children, heavenly domains, in order to be exalted to the very place of God. So the Mormon church is gripped tightly by that original temptation of that old serpent to be exalted to the very place of God. Yes, Pastor. Uh, there's a way that they summarize this teaching. It's not going to be in their articles of faith. It's not going to be uh, up front. It's going to be something that you would learn as you, as you get more into it. Uh, I've read all of the Mormon literature. I've actually studied Mormonism pretty deeply. Okay, yeah. And um, the way that they summarize Some ways it led to my, my conversion. 
That's right. Yeah. Yes. It's their own little book of life that they have. That they have, you know, the, the, their names are written in the book. But do the Baptists or the, or the Presbyterians have a database that says the Bible something out of language? <laughs> <laughs> and that's only a 200-year religion. Yep. See, the Catholics have been around a lot longer. They have a database, but it's not. It's not, it's not yeah, no global database here. Just a membership list. Yeah. That's all. It's <laughs> other is something else. Yeah, and I think personally, uh, when interacting with somebody who subscribes to Mormon teaching, uh, going back to the hope of the Christian is, is the strongest thing. Because the Christian's hope is not to have a spiritual spouse in heaven. It is not to even experience bliss. It's to be in the presence of God and see him face to face, to be face to face with our Savior. And that's not their hope. Their hope is in something else. Yeah. Linda. One thing that I think the Protestant confessions have in common stands to the day uh, is that we have no other books of the Bible than the canon of Scripture. Mm, yes. Uh, in our era, Michael Heiser, many others, I forget the denomination that followed Chuck Missler and uh, late great Planner people, they Very interesting. And it's pathetic because unless we can take that out of the public school system, out of commercials, out of Disney, out of everything else that that philosophy has been introducing into our society through the games and the movies and the sitcoms and the commercials, okay, we have a hard time establishing male and female, only one God, the very doctrines and Yes. Yep. I want to come back to this idea that there are societal norms that we should maybe not participate in when we get to the communicable attributes of God. Uh, so I want to I want to hold on to that and come back to it if we can. But they are our neighbors. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, some of us may be participating in things we don't realize. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm going to bring one of those up here very soon. Uh, but thank you, Linda. Yeah, we'll hold on to that for just a minute. So the idea here of Mormon understanding that there is but one true and living God is not a Mormon tenet. Okay? And it starts with who they believe God is, as we are, he once was, is their belief, and then how we are created with some sort of divine DNA and a potential to be as he is. Well, what does it actually mean? to be made in the image of God? That's a question I think we should all ask ourselves. Uh, and if you would please, in your Trinity Psalter hymnals, 
Turn to the larger catechism, Westminster Larger Catechism, question 17, which is on page 941. The standard helps us to understand this very question. Question 17 reads, how did God create man? Answer, after God had made all the other creatures, he made man male and female, formed the body of man out of the dust of the ground, and the woman of the rib of the man, endued them with living, reasonable, and immortal souls made them after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts and the power to fulfill it and dominion over the creatures yet subject to the fall. So there's a couple points to be made here. Unlike passing on spiritual divine DNA, we were made ex nihilo, which means out of nothing, something. All things, all of creation was made from nothing and became something by God's own words, by the mouth of God, who eternally existed past and will eternally exist future. There's no shared DNA. We were made from dust, brothers and sisters, and we should be very careful lest we assume that we are anything but dust. Now, does that mean that we should treat each other as just piles of dust? <laughs> Absolutely not. Or just once removed. Yeah, just once removed from a pile of dust. Absolutely. However, it's very important to recognize the difference here. And the, what I'm trying to highlight is, though God breathed life into our nostrils, he gave us what we understand as communicable attributes of himself. We are made in his image in a very real sense. Now, what question 17 here says is that we were given living, reasonable, and immortal souls. Okay? Now, if we recognize God as the only one true and living God, anything that is living, that is animate, has at least some element of what God is. God is the one who breathes life. Life is defined by our creator. He is living, therefore we are living. Reasonable. What does it mean that we are reasonable? I don't know if it's always true. We have the ability to think. We have the ability to think. We have a cognitive ability, unlike any other creature. It says here that after God had made all the creatures, he created man, male and female. We were given reasonable souls with the ability to worship, the ability to perceive God and to know him. The fact that we can read his revealed word on the pages of scripture uh, is evidence that we are endowed with reasonable souls. You're also given immortal souls. God has no beginning, but we had a beginning. And in a sense, no end. We've been given this sense of immortality in that when we die, our souls live on. Either to eternal life with him or eternal damnation and the second death. faithful and the unfaithful alike. Um, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Now, this is an interesting one. Um, the Lord, in the covenant of works, gave Adam and Eve the ability to fulfill the law, which unfortunately was not fulfilled. And the fall of man was the result. But he has given mankind the ability to do good works to follow the law of God. We even read last time in Romans 2 that those who were not given the law through the word still follow the law in as far as they have the law written on their hearts. So we know that the Gentiles and other, all cultures understand very vividly that murder is wrong. And there's a sense of what is and what is not righteous in every single person. That's communicable from God. And holiness, be holy as I am holy or be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. I think one, one thing to discuss about communicable attributes is that even though they are communicated from God, we do not exhibit them as God exhibits them. And holiness is a really good one to talk about there because 
we will be made holy by Christ's blood. We are made holy by Christ's blood now through Christ's righteousness that's been put on us. We are not holy, holy, holy. And that's a distinction that must be made. The seraphim and the four living creatures before the throne of God are perfect in God's presence. They've never been cast from God's presence. But they are not holy, holy, holy as he is holy, 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 who is the origin and the very definition of holiness. Art. It's a very big difference between very good and a finished product, a perfect thing. And that's why we're, we're, not, we're, on, we're on a trail, a track, trying to get to that. Mm-hmm. We have knowledge, and you have, know, you have knowing, and you have thinking. The Latins have two different words for those things. Puto, you know, it's, it's one word. Skio means I know it. Mm. Puto means I know of it. You know, I've heard it, and I, I can process it. But the next step is the knowledge. That's sure. Skio. Yep. CIO, the Latin, that where science comes from, to actually know. Like when you read scripture, in, in that moment in time, you don't. But then when you go away and have a meal and come back a couple days later, you kind of know of that scripture. It hasn't, it hasn't been imprinted on you in, in most cases, like you would hope for it to be. And that's, that's, a, that's a dilemma for you, this, this, this thing between thinking and, and knowing. I think you just made a great argument for memorizing scripture and catechesis. Yeah, for sure. Linda? The other is, and it took me a real long time to get here, uh, because I understood modern psychology as a humanist. Okay? There are people that want to be God, soul, and spirit. Mm-hmm. You know, they can do it. You can use the word interchangeably. But apparently Freud would say you have a reasonable soul when you're a body. Then there's this other entity that is war. And I'm going, where's that? How does it eliminate personal woman you gave me, Lord. She gave me and I ate. That, that principle is as old as time. As long as it's not taught as an actual thing that happened that she, he was forced to eat he wasn't there and she seduced him and made him eat that person. I would hate for that to be taught. Yeah. So we're running out of time here. We always do going through these lessons, but that's okay. There's a lot to cover. Um, Communicable attributes. We never rise to the point of God's exhibition of such an attribute. And I think it's also really important to recognize that things like anger, jealousy, we already talked about jealousy being something that we get from God as a communicable attribute, but we so often, imperfectly and sinfully, are jealous. And we so often are sinfully and imperfectly angry. Uh, But righteous anger... Righteous jealousy, attributes of God, communicated to us. Now, we have to end with what is non-communicable. Incommunicable attributes of God, of course, are his omnipresence, omniscience. What am I missing? Omnipresence, omniscience, and omnipotence. So his power, his all-knowing, is every, everywhere, all times. Um, other things like his immutability, his eternality past and present and future. There are such things as incommunicable attributes of God. And we're going to spend the rest of the class pretty much, well, probably the next couple lessons discussing many of those attributes that are listed in the first paragraph of the second chapter of the confession. Uh, and Linda, to your previous point about not knowing or participating in things that don't honor God in our culture. You ever think about Santa Claus? He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. That'll be good for goodness sake. Now, Santa Claus, in the world's view, is such a benign and soft thing, right, for children. But ask yourself, and I exhort you, please, consider whether it is good and proper and what God would think, who is so zealous and jealous for his own affection, if you told your child that somebody else 
saw them while they were sleeping and was concerned about their obedience. Just a thought. Any last questions before we end with prayer? Just a statement. Yes. It was a Mormon that pointed out to me about Christmas mm-hmm. that Jesus existed before he was born in a manger. He said, well, we look back to Genesis. That let us create men in our own image of this mm-hmm. world. And I'm like, oh, maybe they have something here. The Mormon church. Yeah. I didn't know. Yeah. yeah, we were going door to door on our road. It was early 80s, late 80s, early 80s. And like two or three Yeah, well, hopefully now we have a little bit of ammunition when dealing with, with such a faith, you know. And it really goes back to that one hope we have in Christ Jesus, that we will see face to face. So let us go ahead and prepare our hearts to worship God here in just the next 20 minutes. And let's join together in prayer. Our Lord God of heaven and earth, we thank you that you are the one true living God that you've shown that to us in your scriptures. When the priests of Baal called into the wind at nothing, but you responded in fire that licked up the water on the altar and consumed that sacrifice that was there from the, for uh, the display of your glory. Lord, please help us to walk about knowing that you are holy and that you are jealous. Please help us to be watchful of our own sin that so often tempts us to enjoy the temporal and the creation rather than the creator. Please keep us from such sins. And Lord, as we go into this place to hear your worship, to hear that call, the apostolic greeting, help us to be awed and hushed, knowing that you are a holy God and we are in your presence. All of these things we pray in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.